welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is powered by My Hockey Resource and Instat, the leader in video and data analysis. Instat Hockey supports all levels of our game worldwide with video breakdowns and or scouting services. For more information, visit Instat on the web at instatsport.com or on Twitter at Instat Hockey. Today I'm joined by Mark Yates, Director of North America with Instat Sport. For those who don't know Mark, he is a hockey mind through and through and possesses a lot of experience in the team setting, having spent time with the Halifax Mooseheads, Florida Panthers, and more. With a lot of different vantage points, he has seen the game evolve and has a lot of great perspectives brought up throughout the interview, which I think listeners will really enjoy. With that, I am happy to present Mark Yates, Director of North America with Instat Sport. Today we're joined by Mark Yates, Director of North America at Instat Sport. Mark, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about this. Very honored. Yeah, it's great to have you on and you have a ton of experience in, in different areas and we'll get into a lot of it and working with Instat, you also offer that different perspective. So people will be interested in hearing your story. So uh, let's just start, maybe tell us a bit about yourself, including where you're from and then touch on the sports that you participated in growing up. Yeah, no, I, I grew up uh, initially in Cleveland, Ohio. I was pretty fortunate. My father uh, worked at IMG, which was a, which is a huge agency, and he was in the golf division there. But grew up in Cleveland, so I was just around sports all the time uh, until I was 13 years old, and we moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he began another agency. Uh, the sports I played, you know, in Cleveland, it was baseball, hockey, golf. Uh, I swam as a kid played basketball, uh, football in the yard, you know, whatever we could do. We were pretty fortunate. We lived in a little neighborhood. There's probably 20 kids around my age, and we all rode our bikes around and played stickball, whatever we could get our hands on. And then in the winter, we played, you know, hockey with the Cleveland Barons. Um, you know, that was a great organization to be around. Our 87 birth year was a pretty strong year, and we got to tour the country and play all the good teams, right? Honeybake, TI, CYA, go up to Toronto and get the uh, – <laughs> get dominated by North York Rangers, which I think eventually had like five first round picks on it. So, you know, it was a lot of fun. And then we moved to Arizona. I actually, uh, I quit hockey for two years, right? Because you're in Arizona, who's going to play hockey was my thought at the time. And I decided to dedicate my life to golf, um, which was a lot of fun. You could play it year round. And I spent a lot of time on the golf course and, you know, it was, it was pretty decent. Got down to around a scratch handicap uh, when I was 15 years old and, then I realized that hockey just was more fun and probably mentally came a little bit more naturally to me. So I went back and played hockey and uh, it was actually tremendous growing up in Phoenix and playing hockey there because you had so many retired players or retired executives that came to the area or stayed in the area. So, you know, my little brother uh, played for Jimmy Johnson, who was an NHL assistant coach the last you know, five, six, seven years. And was a former NHL defenseman. His other coach was Bobby Smith, who, you know, former first overall pick, owner of Halifax, GM in Phoenix. Uh, you know, we played with, you know, Mike Barnett's kids were around us. Uh, my 18U coach was J.J. Daniel, who obviously was Montreal assistant coach and has been in various locations, the AHL, NHL, and is now the head coach in Halifax. So you always had people around that really taught the game at a high level and you were able to learn a lot. And uh then from there, the journey began, I suppose you could say. So I went off and, you know, I had some injuries. So I went off and I played junior B in the British in Kootenai International Junior Hockey League, which was another great experience because you played for Rich Crom, who's, you know, the Crom family, just a legendary hockey family. And you were around the Okanagan Hockey Academy there. So you met, uh, you met and talked and conversed with so many great people, Blake Wesley, you know, Andy Oaks, Dixon Ward, all these individuals. And then I wanted to, you know, to see if I could get into a Division One school. So I went and played in the Eastern Junior Hockey League for two years for the New England Huskies. And that was kind of my childhood, right? Uh, that's until I aged out of juniors. I suppose that's when I would consider myself a child, right? You had to grow up after you aged out. But it was hockey, every sport you could think of. Watching tons of sports on TV, it was just sports all the time uh, in yeah. my family. So and competitive. I have a large family. So, you know, I have four older sisters that were all state champions or national champions in a sport. You know, my little brother was a fantastic hockey player, but drafted in the ninth round by the LA Dodgers. You know, so we were always competitive with each other. And uh, 
you were always you always just try to excel at sports yeah and that when that competitive you know nature when you're younger and things like that definitely helps uh when pursuing the sports industry and jobs in sports later on but um interesting to hear that you were involved with so many different sports and you had those experiences and as well were able to uh, you know be coached or interact with different hockey minds and and things like that and it all helps you know moving forward so uh, once you stop playing uh, in school, you would attend Cleveland State University. Uh, talk about so, that experience and then how, uh, you know, it kind of helped you moving forward. Yeah, this is probably where most people actually get confused with my life path because I didn't attend Cleveland State actually until I was about 30 years old. Uh, but once I stopped playing, I actually went back home to Arizona. My family still lived there and I went to Arizona State for a year. And it was... Uh, it was an interesting realization, right? Okay, you're not, this is your goal in life. You want to be in hockey, but you're not good enough to play hockey. So what are you going to do now? And it was a realization that if I, if I poured all the efforts that I poured into playing hockey into my studies, I was probably going to be a pretty good student. And that could afford me some opportunity. So I actually, for the first time in my life, because growing up, I, I can tell you I was not a very good student at all. But for the first time in my life at Arizona State that freshman year, I got a 4.0 and I excelled in academics and it was a different sense of achievement, but it was great. And while I was attending school there, I actually, uh, you know, in New England, I had played with a, gen uh, a gentleman named uh, Yegor Yegorov from Ukraine. And he had talked about the Druzba teams and everything. Uh, there was a legendary skating coach. I, I fail to remember his name right now, but uh, he said, well, there's a guy in the United States teaching what this guy taught. It was his disciple, Boris Dorozhenko. He's actually in Phoenix, Arizona. So while I was at ASU, I happened to walk into a rink one day, Arcadia Ice Center, and I hear a guy speaking Russian or with a Russian accent. I said, that's got to be Boris. And I walk over and I introduce myself and say, hey, you know, I, I played with Yegor Yegorov. He told me about you. You know, and Boris invited me out to start uh, coaching with him and learning his system of coaching which is very different. It's a, not a traditional way of skating. It's actually where I met Austin Matthews, right? So Austin Matthews was on the ice every day with this gentleman. And it was incredible what he was teaching. It was, I still believe it's revolutionary to this day, um, his methodology and the way that he uses the body to increase speed and balance. And it was a tremendous learning experience. So I was on the ice every day there. And that's when I kind of realized, you know, yeah, I'm getting good grades, but they don't teach in school what I want to accomplish. You know, I want to be a hockey guy. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to study the game of hockey. And uh, as a result, I actually moved back to New England. And I was able to get the director of hockey operations job with UMass Lowell, which was another tremendous experience, right? So I was around Sean McEachern every day and in the office with him and him breaking down the games. And you know, Sean had just left Northeastern, I believe, and come to UMass Lowell. And you talk about a guy that's detailed. I mean, it was... It was my first introduction to actually like a professional coaching uh, atmosphere. And Sean was so detailed and so um, driven, right? And the way he conducted himself. And it was, once again, I, I was probably too immature at the time to really reap the rewards of learning from him, right? I'm only 22, 23 years old, but uh, just watching him and then being able to reflect upon that, you look back and you say, wow, you know, the way he showed up in the office every morning, it was structured daily and his workouts and everything that he did to conduct himself. It's very interesting. So and then at, at that point, I actually withdrew myself from school and began, you know, after that year at UMass Lowell, uh, where I was doing community college, I actually withdrew myself from school and went on and coached uh, a year and a half of junior hockey in the Atlantic Junior Hockey League under Chris Sorella and the Hartford Wolfpack. And then the uh, second year was with the second half year was with Paul Jenkins in New England, who coached me in juniors. But even that first year of coaching in Connecticut, it was fantastic because J.J. Daniel was the Hartford Wolfpack assistant coach, uh, the New York Rangers affiliate. So I was able to run into J.J., who would coach me in midget, and he would walk me through their practice plans and how what they were working on and why they did this drill and why they did that and how to construct a, a practice in what he deemed you know, a, a highly constructive fashion, right? So it was learning all the time, like just trying to, so I'd show up at the rink at 10 in the morning and watch their practice and then stay till 11 at night and watch, you know, coach our practices, et cetera. Uh, so it was a tremendous experience, but just being around these people early on in my career, you know, really benefited me. Definitely. And, you know, you touched on a number of unique experiences there, UMass Lowell and 
a couple of your coaching experiences in different areas and just working with those coaches on a daily basis and getting to see them run practices and, and things like that. It really does uh, help develop your own mindset and your own practices as well. Um, another area that a lot of people learn like that is in the rinks and scouting and uh, many scouts will know that the conversations you have are really, uh, you know, where you develop your mindset. So in the summer of 2011, you would join the Halifax Mooseheads as an amateur scout. Um, you know, tell us how you found yourself there and then walk us through that initial scouting experience at the CHL level. So I think, you know, everybody that is early on in their hockey careers, you're always trying to find a way to make an extra dollar, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a secret that you struggle for quite a while to get into this sport. And, you know, I was coaching the New England Huskies. Uh, I'd just been brought over by, from Connecticut. And, uh, you know, I was looking to make a few extra dollars so I could pay the rent. And I called Bobby Smith. You know, I finally got in touch with Bobby Smith, who I'd met in my childhood. Uh, my brother had played for him. I knew his children, et cetera. And, you know, we had a quick conversation. I said, Bobby, you know, this is what I'm looking to do. Can you handle, can you use somebody in New England? And, uh, you know, he gave me the opportunity to begin working for Halifax. Um, and to say that I, you know, I, looking back, I would work for them for free, right? Like it was maybe the best learning experience I've ever had in my life was just working with Bobby and Cam Russell and all the individuals in that organization, you know, Tipper LeBlanc, uh, Allie McDonald, uh, just everybody from top to bottom. It was such a classy organization and you learned just so much, but you know, the biggest thing that happened that year was actually um, at about uh, in November, Boris Dorjanko, the skating coach from Phoenix, called me and said, hey, the Ukrainian Federation's asked me to open an academy for their 13-year-olds to try and train their kids. Uh, you know, are you interested in coming over? We have to teach them North American hockey. And so I actually had a conversation with Bobby. And he said, well, maybe you can help us in Europe, right? And that's Bobby to a T. He always takes potential issue, turns it into a positive situation and makes everybody happy and just just because he's a tremendous gentleman. And I went over there and I remember my first week, you know, I know stories come later, but I actually went to Austria for the youth Olympics. Got to watch, you know, Jack Eichel play Yevgeny Svechnikov. I think it was, uh, what, are they both late 96s? Or maybe one's late. Yeah, anyway, they're in the same tournament. And so I was watching them at 14, 15 years old, 15 years old play. And it was, uh, it was a pretty cool tournament atmosphere to be a part of. And, but yeah, I went to Ukraine for seven months after that. Um, just an opportunity you can't pass up, right? Somebody calls you and says, would you like to coach internationally? As a young person, looked at it and said, yeah, you know, I have Ukrainian ancestry. I'd like to go see what Ukraine's about. You know, you hear all this and that, but it turned out to be the best seven months of my life. And I met my wife there and met lifetime friends and still go back every chance I get. Obviously my wife's family's there, but uh Ukraine was just a tremendous, tremendous experience. Um, different set of politics for sure, <laughs> dealing with the players and the parents there. But it was a great lesson in how you communicate with people. You know, I, I obviously I, I speak very little Russian or Ukrainian for that matter. Um, so I had the kids translating for me, and you know, how do you how do you alter the Soviet mindset that was instilled in them? to make them more productive maybe, or do you have to abide by that Soviet mindset? Is, is that where they're productive in that, in that, uh, in that type of system and dealing with the assistant coach who, you know, is wondering is, is literally from the Soviet union, right? He's a 60 year old gentleman that's hasn't ever had anything else and is wondering why we're playing music in the locker room. You know, and these are 13 year old kids. So it was just a, an incredible experience. And, uh, yeah, that was Ukraine. And yeah, and then I came back and continued to scout for Halifax. Learned I didn't want to coach, actually. I didn't like the politics of coaching yeah. when I came back. So I just started scouting full time. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things that uh, you really do have to experience to kind of understand uh, the entirety of, the, of what you can learn in, in a role like that. And we've had a couple of different coaches who, uh, you know, go to Europe and, and coach in these different areas and, uh, you know, politics and just the general culture of a lot of these teams and the places you're coaching is very different from what some of the coaches that we've talked with have been accustomed to. So it's just kind of learning the cultural differences. And then, you know, communication is always tough with different languages and things like that. But a uh, general theme is that you can learn a lot in those roles. And if you're willing to kind of step out of your comfort zone and, and take in that experience, uh, you know, you can get a lot from it. Well, it was great because, well, first of all, once again, I was still immature right I mean I was only 25 years old and experiencing this so looking back you get a lot more out of it than maybe in the present 
while you're there. But, uh, you know, Soko Kiev had a team there that year and they had Berkut and it was like probably the top year ever of the, the premier, the Ukrainian hockey league, which was only eight teams. Um, but they had Donbass, they had uh, Berkut and Soko Kiev, the top three teams. And Bear, or Donbass is owned by the wealthiest guy in Ukraine. So his team was loaded with players from the KHL and uh, former second round NHL draft pick was there, six, seven forward. I forget his name, but he couldn't play in America because of his heart condition, but he could still play in Europe. And he was a tremendous, uh, tremendous player to watch. And then you had Soko Kiev had a lot of money. So they had Andre Nikolishin, albeit at the end of his career, but you had uh, you know, four or five guys that had played in the AHL or NHL. And you also had probably three more guys that were from the Canadian hockey league. So I had a lot of English speakers around me. Um, and the head coach of Soko Kiev became the Las Vegas Knights scout. Uh, you know, he's a general manager in the KHL now. He had played in the NHL, so I could sit down and talk with him. And you made great friendships with these people. And you learned a lot about the workings of Eastern European hockey, uh, which is vastly different than North American hockey. And, you know, something a lot of people are probably a little bit skeptical of or afraid of at the end of it because they don't necessarily understand it. But once you get an understanding of it, you realize how great of a culture it is, how great, uh, how they want the same thing. They might just go about it a different way. And some of their methodology is maybe superior to what we do in North America and vice versa. So just very interesting conversations that I had there. Yeah, no, it's great to hear that experience and, and to know that you uh, had a positive takeaway from it. So moving forward a few years later, uh, while still with the Mooseheads, you would also join NHL Central Scouting. Uh, during your season on that staff, just talk about what you learned, uh, you know, being part of that team and interacting with those individuals. Well, Dave Gregory, um, just D- Dave Gregory is just a tremendous individual, right? So while I was in New England, you know, another story is, uh, you know, when I was about 14, we, my father, being a golf agent, took my brother and I to the Honda Classic in Florida. And we were on the range. It was, we went for the practice rounds. We didn't go for the actual tournament. And we were on the range running around, you know, being immature. We were kids. And uh, my dad pulled me, pulled me aside and said, do you see that? And I said, no, you know, what do I see? He said, that's Brad Faxon getting a lesson from Claude Harmon. And if you want to be serious at golf, you need to listen to what Claude Harmon's saying about the golf swing because he's one of the best in the world. And it was just like a little tidbit of information that I kept with me my whole life, right? So if you want to learn about something, you go to the people with the most experience. And I was very fortunate to work, like I said, with Bobby and Cam in Halifax, but ultimately in New England, I met a group of individuals. The first day I was scouting, I sat right next to them. You know, Jack Gardner, Bob Lucchini, uh, Bob Crocker, Paul Merritt, uh, Bill Berglund. These are all gentlemen that, that were over 60 years old and have been in the game of hockey for 40, 50 years. Uh, you know, Bob Crocker, 60 years. And I asked Bob, eventually I said, Bob, you know, I'm looking to learn more. Can I just drive you around? We'll make a deal. You're getting older. You know, can I drive you around? I'll bring the coffee. I'll bring the donuts, but can I just drive you around? I'll meet you wherever you want. And, and uh, it was the best friendship I ever made in my life. And I tell that story because those gentlemen, you know, Ryan Hardy moved on, uh, I think to the U S national program at that time, there became a vacancy in NHL central scouting. And those gentlemen each wrote a letter of, uh, recommendation to Dave Gregory, who was, you know, Jim Gregory, another legendary family. And Dave, uh, Dave gave me the opportunity, interviewed me and gave me the opportunity. It's something I'll forever be grateful for. Just a tremendous, tremendous individual, uh, tremendous evaluator of talent, tremendous knowledge of the game, both on and off the ice, the business side of it. Um, his family, like, you know, he treats you, treats you like his own son and he introduces you to his family and they're great people. And, you know, I think what you learn from all those individuals, the older generation and Dave Gregory included, uh, is just what's supposed to be done. You know, whether it's, you know, Bob Crocker would write, it's like Arnold Palmer in golf. You know, golf's a big, I'm a big fan of golf, as you can tell. But Arnold Palmer writes congratulatory notes to players in golf upon their first win when he was alive, right? And Bob Crocker would do that to people when they got a job or something. And you sit there and go, you know, this is what it's supposed to be like. These are the traditions that should be kept alive. And I found a lot of that in the central scouting um, with that team of people, with Dave Gregory, that it was, uh, they treated it with a lot of respect. And I really appreciated that and continued to learn about that the most, I think. Yeah, a number of great takeaways. And 
when you have, you know, people that are willing to take you under their wing and write the recommendations like that, it really goes a long way in your own development. So, um, you know, great to hear that you had those positive uh, experiences and positive influences through that staff. And, uh, you know, not many people are able to jump into an opportunity like that. Um, but it's interesting to hear how it aligned for you. Well, yeah, they're just, they were great people. And to be honest, they weren't going to get rid of me. <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, it was, you know, I did that for three or four years with those gentlemen uh, in that time of central scouting too. And just, you know, they became the best, my best friends in life. And they taught me more than anybody's ever taught. You know, it was a lot of driving through new England. You know, if you're going to get scouting started in scouting, you should start in new England because it's probably the toughest place to scout because you have to evaluate players that are so far from their ceiling. Uh, compared to a CHL or USHL player, right? A prep school player. And you have to find these players. It's not, you really have to go and dig. You have to uncover under every stone and you really have to dig in that region. And it's a lot of driving. You know, I put 60, 70,000 miles on my car every, every year, um, which over a hundred thousand kilometers. And uh, it was a lot of hours with these guys listening to the stories you know, this is why we drafted Ron Francis. This is you know, what we did when he got to Hartford. And uh, this is how I got Gordy Howe to come to Hartford when I was the assistant GM. And you know, these are the stories from BU. And we had to call on our scouting reports and uh, the secretary would write them down after a game. And you listen to all the stories and you really grew to appreciate. And they knew the best part about them was they knew every uh, pit stop in New England, right? So, oh, there's a great burger joint right off this road here. If we go here and they knew every little spot and it was just a lot of fun to be around them and see the tradition. Uh, you know, I forgot to mention Ed McColgan was part of that group. He was a tremendous gentleman to me, tremendous, but you learned all those little things about scouting from them, you know, how to work together, but also keep your secrets and be very quiet and not let people know what's going on. And it was a really cool experience with them. Yeah, great to hear. And some of our other guests have also mentioned, you know, you get those people that teach you how to do the job, but, not really like the exact fine details that they don't want in the public and things like that. So when you have that fine balance of just learning how to be a good person, how to have fun, you know, finding the right places along the, along the trips and things like that, it really does uh, bring it full circle and help you develop in that area. So, you know, moving outside of hockey for a moment, uh, you were also able to have a quick experience in baseball. Walk us through your time with the Lake Erie Crushers on their business side. And then some of the things you learned that would help you down the road in hockey and, and other things. Well, yeah, I mean, as I stated earlier, you're always looking to make a little extra money, right? To hockey, you, you really have to work your way up the food chain to make some money. And I was about to get married, and I said, you know, there's an opportunity here to take a full-time job just with a baseball team and have a bit more security in life. And, um, and I was moving home to Cleveland. It was with a gentleman at the time, you know, was a, you know, was a family friend, is a family friend, and um, it seemed like a pretty – a smart move because he was going to give me a lot of responsibility and you know even I'm pretty certain that running an organization whether it be baseball football basketball or hockey or soccer or whatever the sport might be is it's pretty much the same right the business side of it where you're selling sponsorships where you're you have to manage the um you know the food uh I can't even think of the word it's not coming to mind but uh you know, you just have to manage things, ticket sales, et cetera, um, suite sales, everything, the radio, all these things. And it was an opportunity where it was, Hey, you know, why don't I go and take this and see, see if I'm good at this and let's learn about it. And it gives you a different kind of awareness all the while working towards your goal of moving up in the hockey world, right? This gives me more tools to understand how do I budget for certain things within an organization you know, how do the different sides work together while being, you know, in this case, it was baseball ops and the sales side. So, you know, hockey ops and sales, how are they going to work together? And I think that's, it was a great lesson. I can tell you, I don't like selling tickets. <laughs> that was the biggest thing. I did like the sponsorship sales and I liked, uh, I liked being public facing. I liked going out and, you know, it was, it was a great experience where I was the team representative in the community in a lot of ways. And, I'd go and meet with the mayor and sit down about the ballpark and what they're going to do for renovations and how we're going to get the money from the city. And there were so many things that I learned. It was a fantastic year. Uh, the gentleman that I worked for really let me go, you know, and let me learn. And that's the way I learned best. I know that about myself. It's just to go and try something. Um, and at the same time, 
I was incredibly fortunate that, uh, you know, I, I met James Boyd and he let me scout Mississauga for Mississauga in the winters as well to keep my foot in hockey or my toes in hockey. And, uh, you know, with Bobby and Cam, it's another great person in hockey that you met is James Boyd, you know, gentleman that I tr have tremendous respect for. And you learn a lot uh, from him over the years watching and observing him, similar to how I watched and observed Bobby and Cam. You just learn a lot from those individuals. It's always interesting to hear the experiences in other sports, just because, you know, it's very rare that it's a straight path in hockey. Like you said, you got to try to uh, supplement your income and things like that. And, you know, you, you find yourself working here and there and everywhere in between, but interesting to hear that it was positive and you were able to have so many takeaways in hockey and, you know, on the hockey side and you met well, an individual like James, it's uh, it's always a positive. Well, the gentleman that uh, owned the baseball team that gave me the job, he, his sons were actually hockey players. So he knew my love for hockey and uh, he gave me a lot of leeway with that where, you know, it was, I'd show up at the office at three in the morning, let's say, so that I could leave by two in the afternoon and get up to Sarnia and watch a, the world under 17s were there that year. Right. So he gave me a lot of leeway to kind of make it work. Uh, you know, maybe take off a Friday afternoon and drive to Chicago and scout some hockey uh, or Detroit or whatever it might be. So I, I owe him a, a lot, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a fun year. I got to learn about the OHL, which is, you know, different than the Quebec league in a lot of ways. And, it got to expand my network and it was just, it was a nice year. I learned a considerable amount. Yeah. That's great to hear. And uh, you know, you, you talked briefly about the steelheads there. Uh, just touch on the transition to the OHL from the QMJHL and maybe how the scouting process was a little bit different, uh, you know, just with the, the ways that the two leagues, uh, you know, scout different areas, et cetera. Well, the population of the Ontario hockey league, like their player pool is significantly greater than the population of the Quebec leagues. So the creativity, you know, you're not focused the Quebec league. You're probably focused more on, can I snag one or two free agents from somewhere? Uh, or maybe more, you know, you're focused on how can, can, I have to wait for this kid to turn 18 and get through his drafts. And then, you know, how can I get him through and be a free agent or who can I invite to camp and this and that where the OHL, everything's kind of right in front of you and you just have to work, roll up your sleeves, work and know every player. Um, so there's probably, it's probably more of a, I don't mean this to the, to say it's easier. I just mean, it's different in that it's probably more of a straightforward approach in the OHL for the Quebec league. You really have to sometimes get creative and figure out how am I going to get this player from wherever in, because our, just our pool is smaller and I need to find a way to expand that player pool. Right. I mean, how do you, how do you get better talent? You expand the player pool. It's very, you know, uh, they're correlated directly. So I would say that was the biggest difference. Uh, and New England is just tougher to scout, as I mentioned earlier. New England, to me, and I'm sure there are varying opinions, but in the, I mean, the West in Canada might be just as tough. I've never been really out there. But New England was so tough to scout because there's just, uh, there's a thousand teams, every different level, and to know every player that, and everything that's going on. And that's what the, the elder generation taught me is you have to know everybody. You have to know every player in your backyard. So it was uh, New England was tough. And I thought Ontario is a lot more simple. You have a few leagues you have to cover. Then you have the province of Ontario, you know, outside of Ontario, you have a few leagues and you have the province of Ontario and you have your different levels there and you can go after it and everything's kind of right in front of you. Yeah, it definitely does help when you have, you know, such a high population to kind of have a, a system that you can just go through. And like you said, just study the players, know the players on every team and, um, you know, it definitely is a different approach in the two leagues. And like you said, the WHL, it has a whole other system themselves. So um, something to take away from every level for sure. But, you know, following a, a stint there with that club, you had a chance to take on a bigger role in the USHL with Muskegon. Uh, how did you come to work with the Lumberjacks? And what were some of your main responsibilities uh, with the team? You know, I ran into John Van Beesbrook in Plymouth, Michigan at the U.S. Well, it's now the USA Arena. At that time, it was the CompuWare Arena. And I act like I, you know, I say that like I'm so old. It was just a couple of years ago that it switched names. But um, we just happened to have a conversation. It came up that, hey, I need someone to scout for me, right? I'm, I'm the GM and I'm doing all the scouting. And so, well, I, you know, hey, maybe I'd be good at that. So conversation turned into a formal um offer and I took it 
and then I ran with it. And you know, that's when I thought it was a pretty good year in Muskegon. We probably, I thought that we upped the, uh, the talent level uh, significantly. You know, you take lessons once again that you've learned from everybody. So, you know, what do you learn from Halifax? Well, everybody knows you, you go after the, the imports really hard <laughs> because imports are really important to, to a junior team success. You know, those one or two players that are above everybody else, they really improve an organization and they do it quickly. So, you know, I think within a 24 hour window of signing the documents, it was, Hey, we got to get Svechnikov. His brother's playing in Grand Rapids. And what do we know about, uh, you know, mothers in Russia, they like to be by their, their sons. Like it's a very close bond and, you know, his mom's borscht is probably something Andre wants to eat, you know, and I knew this from the culture, you know, having been over there, et cetera. And it was, uh, let's figure out who the agent is, which we figured out and then call and say, you know, let's set something up here where the mom can be by both of her children. Grand Rapids is 30 minutes away from Muskegon. And that led to, you know, Svechnikov coming over, uh, which obviously, you know, he exploded that year. He's a, he's a hell of a player and an incredibly good actually found him to be just a good human being, uh, which, you know, every kid's a good human being, uh, to be honest with you, just the situations that they're put in, but he was extremely polite, extremely kind. And then we had Yahim Kondelik there, which, you know, he was fifth overall to Sudbury uh, in the import draft that year, but through a friend in Czech Republic, I knew he didn't, he wanted to go to the university route. And so I was able to get him over which was exciting because i think he was the captain of the u18 check team at that time or u17 check team so he was we knew he was a really high-end player uh we had vladislav kakov in camp vlad was a vlad was hilarious vlad here's a good story for you uh, i brought my wife to camp to translate for vlad uh, so she could talk to him and everything and for 24 hours you know, he was only there for 48 hours or so. So 36 hours, I'm trying to speak to Vlad in my limited Russian. My wife's translating for us. And then I have to take him to the airport to fly home. And we're sitting in the car and I say something in English and he smiles. And I go, you're kidding me, right? He goes, and he goes, what? And in his Russian accent, I said, you understand English, don't you? He said, yes, very well. And I said, you son of a gun for 36 hours. He goes, well, it's easier for me to speak Russian, you know? Like, so, but Vlad was a great kid. He ended up not playing for us, but we had the opportunity to sign him if we wanted, which, you know, he's what signed with San Jose now playing in Shakutami. Uh, or he, I don't know where he is right now, obviously with COVID. You had Alexi Halme in that camp. Alexi started the season in Muskegon. He's now in the KHL Yokrit as a 99 birth year. He may be the most underrated player. He was one of those players that coaches scouts dream of and coaches didn't know how to handle. And uh, you could never understand why the coaches couldn't really understand how to handle him because you just saw all the immense talent that he had. So that was an interesting situation. Then we had uh, Brady keeper in camp. Brady signed actually with the university of Maine while at our camp. And uh, that was maybe, that was the best find. I'll, I'll give a, uh, I can't say his name, I guess, but uh, a friend of mine, and if he listens to this, he'll know exactly who he is. I give him credit for finding him. But he said, hey, there's a kid in Cross Lake Manitoba. You got to get this kid. I said, first of all, where's Cross Lake Manitoba? And he said, well, look at a map and you'll find it. <laughs> it took me a couple minutes even on the map to find Cross Lake. But uh, Brady, we, we got in touch with him and we got him down to Muskegon. And University of Maine, I think, offered him a full ride right away. I mean, he was... Svechnikov wasn't at that camp, but Kakov was there, and all these other kids were there, Colin Adams, everybody. And I can tell you he was the most talented player I've ever seen at a camp before in my life. It was uh, – I wasn't prepared for – and he was the toughest kid. So it was – you know, he would embarrass a kid on the ice with his skill and his play, and the kid would get frustrated. And mostly fights occur out of frustration. So the kid would go and try to fight Brady, and then the kid would end up picking up his gloves and skating away before Brady could get his off, realizing like the fear and the intimidation that Brady had. And now he's obviously with the Florida Panthers and just very happy for him. He was incredibly humble and intelligent young man. He was a good player. So we had a loads of talent. Adam Brzgala came from Czech Republic. He's playing in the Czech top league or second league now. Uh, uh, Petrozelli was the goalie, was a good, good goaltender. Uh, that was, that's how good Brady keeper was, is we played a three on three scrimmage, small area game. And you had one minute installments or a minute and a half installments and like a minute and a half Brady keeper must've scored about eight or nine goals on Keith Petrozelli. 
is how good Brady Keeper was. Like just, it was, it was incredibly good to watch him. And then, yeah. So Muskegon was a fun experience, right? It kind of took the handcuffs off of me and put me in a position where I could go and get players and test my hand at it. And uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think anytime you can work with those high level players and have the, you know, the freedom and the ability to go out and, and, you know, recruit them and things like that in the USHL, obviously being a great opportunity for that. It's just, uh, you know, like once again, it's another opportunity for you to learn and, and to grow and uh, hopefully move on to better things. So, you know, soon after, uh, while still with Muskegon, you would work as an underage scout with the Florida Panthers. Um, just briefly touch on that unique opportunity and the initial excitement, you know, in working with an NHL club. Well, it was Toby O'Brien, another tremendous individual in the game of hockey uh, from that New England region. So he knew me through you know, the, my time in New England. And when he was named the head scout uh, for Tom Rowe, you know, I just contacted Toby and said, congratulations. You know, if there's a way that I can help, you know, I would love to get involved. Obviously, you get into the sport to reach the highest level, right? It's everybody's goal. And it was people that know me know I'm pretty driven. Um, and that was my goal. So to be honest, when I, when he called me and said, yeah, we're going to figure something out. We want you to work with us. It's probably uh, one of the best days of my life. You know, you accomplished a goal. You, you made the NHL, whether it was it's an underage scout as an over, whatever the heck it was, it was a scout and you were with an organization. And it's probably one of the proudest moments of my life. And it was, Toby was great in that. Well, first of all, you, you're learning from an organization, right? At an NHL level. So you're learning from the big business. It's not minor league. It's not junior. It's just different. And you're learning how they do things on an international scale and scouting. And you're, you're able to observe that. So that's a tremendous opportunity, how they set up their calls, how they structure their calls, how they, the communication is structured, how they want their reports written. Everything is structured a certain way to feed into the end goal of drafting a better player. So that was very interesting. And though, you know, Toby's communication style with me was fantastic where, you know, he, he leveraged my knowledge of the USHL and of the underage class to understand future draft classes, which I thought was fantastic. And I don't know how many teams actually do that to this day. Right. I think, you know, how can you trade for a 2023 second round draft choice? If you're not aware of what the 2023 draft class is going to be like, well, if you have an underage scout, you can go and you can research that, right? And you can find out, you know, is this class loaded? Like, you know, the 2001 class is loaded. So we should load up for draft picks in the 2001 because that's an ultra-rich draft class. Uh, so it was fun to see them moving in that direction. It was also a year that Florida, you know, there was a lot of controversy there. Uh, but sitting in the meetings and seeing their approach with analytics was my entry point in, into data right? It was, you found that year between Muskegon and Florida, I found the power of data. Where if you're arguing about a player in Muskegon or conversing or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, they sit there and say, well, he doesn't get any shots on that. And you say, well, actually he had two shots on that in that game. So how can you say he doesn't have any? So your eye test is telling you he's not a good player because he doesn't get any shots on that. But the data is saying that actually your eye test is lying to you. So now, now we're in a pickle, right? So let's go back and watch the game and let's observe it now with the new uh, acknowledgement or knowledge that our eye test initially was wrong and watching with more open eyes, right? And that helps you, well, it just keeps uh, the emotions out of picking a player. It holds your emotions in line. So you can't bicker back and forth. It's, well, no, this actually did happen. Now, if you wanna talk about where he took shots from, that's a different conversation. But Florida taught me that in a large regard, right? It, it taught me that uh, and be prior to taking the job with Florida and understanding the transition that that organization was taking from the media and everything. Uh, and having you know, people say, Mark, you're in data and this and that. I consider myself a hockey guy because I, with those older gentlemen in New England, I would watch 800, 900 games a year. I mean, I, I like going to the rink. I don't think there is a replacement for going to the rink and actually watching the game. But I, before I took that job with Florida to understand what I was getting into, I went and actually met uh, with a family friend that works for the Cleveland Indians. And I said, well, how do you guys use data? And it was the most fascinating explanation of how actually their data is, the eye test is the most important thing in their organization because that you know, dictates the data. 
and so the whole this whole theory that uh, you know analytics are going to replace the eye test and this and that is completely fraudulent. And that's how naive I was at the time is, you know, are analytics going to replace scouts? You know, what's this debate about? And I didn't really know it. And I said, well, let's start here and see how they're using it in baseball because obviously they're way ahead of us. And he explained to me, you know, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if my eye test, if you can teach your scouts to have a baseline eye test of certain metrics, you can take those numbers, you know, everybody has rink nets. So you put one, two, three, four, whatever. If I can teach my scouts the exact or close baseline approximations for those metrics, I can take those numbers and put them into my algorithm and the analytics should match or should counter what the eye test is, right? It's actually placing emphasis on the eye test. And that's what I learned that year is how, how they should work together and how they you know, sometimes don't, to be honest. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, a lot of um, learning in that role and in both of those roles, really. But I like the fact that you talked about the analytics and it really is one of those things that you have to pair. It, like analytics aren't going to take over going into the rinks. Uh, me, I'm a director of analytics, but if I look at the NHL level, um, I hope nobody is just diving right into analytics. You know, you really do have to get into the rinks and, and see those games and watch those players and, and then use analytics to either back yourself up or or look at different things in a player's, you know, skill set and things like that. But um, one of the things that really interested me in that conversation was just your interest in the data and wondering how it can be used. And today you're the director of North America uh, with Instat Sport. Uh, just break down your current role with Instat and give us some background on the brand and, you know, the outlook moving forward. Yeah, so I oversee all sales in North America. So I manage a team. I think we just eclipsed 20 people the other day. So or surpassed 20 people the other day in North American sales. We have six people in hockey, uh, which is obviously what I'm most closely associated with and manage most closely on a daily basis. And then you have uh, your sales in soccer and basketball. And I took this job about nine months ago. Well, I took the the director of North America job about nine months ago. I've been with the company for over a year now. And I did that while uh, I was actually finishing up my degree that you had mentioned very early on here at Cleveland state for organizational leadership and communication at Cleveland state. Um, so it was a lot of fun actually taking the job, right? Because upon departing Muskegon in Florida, you're sitting there and you're wondering, what do I learn from these situations? Okay. So, you know, I didn't really enjoy my time at Muskegon. What was the issue? There's always two people in every situation. You know, how can I improve for my next opportunity? And you, that drove me back to school to finish my degree and learn more about that, how to handle conflict, how to handle communication better, uh, how to set things up where they're going to work. And so Instat was a great opportunity because I kind of got to test all those theories. So my biggest, my biggest theory always is don't manage what you don't know. So in soccer and basketball, I think you would talk to my staff and you would say, I'm really hands off, you know, bring me the issues that you need help with. Let me know the negotiations. Let me know the numbers. But in general, I don't know anything about soccer in North America. You know, I know the, what the MLS is. I know the youth soccer and this and that, but I've hired these individuals to handle soccer, let them handle soccer. Um, and it's, you know, same thing with basketball. I know, general things in basketball. I know some people here or there and sports relatively are the same across all, but I don't know it like a person in basketball should. So just step back and take the handcuffs off these people and let them go. And if they, if you don't trust them to get the job done, well, you have to move on from them, right? Trust is how you grow things. And that's been the best. It's been awesome to learn how I manage and who I am as a leader, et cetera. Uh, so the brand is, we're the largest soccer company in the world, and we've been around since 2007. It started as soccer in Moscow, Russia, doing the Russian Premier League. And it's exploded since. It's, uh, we're used by every team and national federation you can dream of in soccer uh, for scouting purposes, for fitness tracking, for analytics, whatever you can dream of, we do in soccer. And about five years ago, they decided to do that or take that same approach, but in the other sports, so hockey, basketball, uh, in North America, we're not into the volleyballs and the, the futsal and every other sport we are in Europe right now. Uh, we're getting there, but we're just not there yet. So five years ago, they launched hockey and basketball. And I think hockey right now, internationally, we're probably the largest, we hold 
the largest amount of the market. Uh, you know, I think we've, in about nine months, we've grown a considerable amount in hockey. We're, we're constantly trying to get better. I can say that. Uh, I think the biggest thing about the company that I'm most proud of is the culture that we built where we, we work really hard. You know, I told you I've already been up for this is a 9 a.m. conversation, but I've been up for a number of hours already dealing with everything. And everybody on my team does the same thing. Uh, they work really hard and they, we all try to deal in a, with a high level of integrity as well. And that those are the two things that I'm most proud of about our organization, the growth we've taken. And where we're going, well, that's a secret. Um, but uh, we're going to keep trying to improve. I think we know what our niche is. We know where we want to expand to in the future. And we're taking the, the necessary steps to get there. However slow they might be, we're taking the necessary steps. I think, I, I think I've become more patient, but I still don't think I'm that patient of a person where I wish the steps that I know are going to take a month took one day. Uh, so that's the company. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I think, once again, you're focused on communication because we are at our heart a Russian-based company, right? I think everybody knows that about us. And so communicating back to Moscow or with the COO over in Ireland, um, it's interesting. It's a, it's a constant battle. And I have to constantly uh, focus on effective communication instead of, you know, it's not just your normal where I can speak English, English, English. It's you really have to sit there and think about what you're saying and how you're delivering the message, which I think once again, prepares you for things in life. You know, it's just another life lesson that you learn and um, you learn how to be a leader immediately. Uh, you know, you recall the, what made James Boyd a great leader, what made Cam Russell a great leader, what made Bobby Smith a great leader, Dave Gregory, like all these individuals that are good leaders, what made them great leaders? And you, you know, when I took the job, I tried to pinpoint a few things. I already knew kind of what I thought of them. And I've kept a diary of, uh, throughout everything that we've talked about today, I've kept a diary, right? Of what I like, what I don't like, what I've observed, what I haven't observed, et cetera. So it wasn't hard to go back and identify you know, this is what I want to be and this is what I want to create. And ultimately it comes down to just be yourself, right? As a leader, you know, if you're secure in who you are, the people beneath you will, or that will have to follow you, will follow you. And, uh, you know, I, I'm the first one to take critique. I'm the first one to, you know, bust somebody's chops. And I just really try to stay even keel in who I am. I shouldn't say even keel, just who I am, right? To, if emotions brought out, emotions brought out. Negative, positive. It's who I am. And I own it every day. And that's the type of leader I've tried to become. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of those things that people really admire in a boss or someone who's managing them. You know, just be yourself and, and be consistent in who you are. Like, you know, I work feel if you're emotional, be emotional. If you're one of those people who that's just not your thing, like consistently do that because then you learn to work and you learn what they like and, and what they can teach you as well. And, and there's so many different takeaways from that. And I think it's a great point. And, you know, many people are aware of Instat uh, from the introduction, but also, you know, in social media, Twitter, especially, um, it really is a great brand and a lot of things that you can learn there. So, uh, you know, I advise anybody to kind of check it out if they haven't been able to work with it uh, to date. So as many people know, Instat works heavily with analytics, like you said, the hockey level. Uh, from your viewpoint, maybe just discuss the use of analytics in today's game overall. I know you touched on it briefly, but maybe just go a little bit more on your thoughts and then, uh, you know, maybe say why or how teams, uh, you know, should continue to look to invest in it moving forward. Oh, you don't want to get too much into my thoughts, right? No, I'm just <laughs> joking around. Uh, analytics, I find that uh, it's a word that creates fear, right? It's like a taboo word. And I know that's a cliche saying in hockey now, but I don't know if, you know, when you're afraid of something, you're, you don't understand it typically, right? There's a lack of understanding. And I don't know if the hockey community, and obviously some teams have, some teams haven't, but in general, the hockey community, I don't think if it's, it's taught analytics correctly. And I think that almost, you know, if you're asking my, my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if the hockey community understands the analytics they're using yet to a certain extent, right? We're still kind of figuring it out. 
you know, how do we use this? Why do we use this? When do we use this? And we want to say that we are proficient users of it, that we do this and we do this, but we, but honestly, we're not, right? Uh, we're not as far along as baseball, football, basketball are. We're just not there, soccer, you know, soccer internationally. And um, I think the sooner we realize it, the sooner we'll find, you know, it's like the sooner you realize a mistake, the sooner you find a cure for a mistake. But it's not that we're mistaken, it's just that there's no consistency how do I say this perfectly? Um, what helps us win and what doesn't help us win? Can we honestly sit there and say, we know this? Some people can, you know, they'll defend it to their death. And some people say, no, we can, and I have to keep researching. And I think that's where analytics has kind of gone awry in hockey, where, you know, you sit there with an elder gentleman and you're talking the game and no, emotions can't be captured in analytics. No, I agree with you. It's very hard to do that, right? You know, but can we put a number to an emotion in different categories? Can we break down emotions? Yeah, we can. It would be a long process, but we can do that and we can capture it to an extent and be more accurate with our predictions, right? Um, but I find that a lot of the analytics community, we sit there and we're, I'll put me in this category, although I don't know if I'm much of an analytics guy, but all right, I guess I am because I run the company. But my point is, is that we sit there and we, we try to change what we know to be true. So, you know, nobody's going to argue with you that on a two-on-one, if I move the puck past the, the y-axis, I increase my odds to score by 27%. Yeah, we, we know that because hockey's told us that. Like everybody that has ever played the game of hockey knows this. This is, in, this is inherent knowledge. I don't need analytics to do that, but analytics is supporting it, so we'll agree on that. But to say that I need more shots than the other opponent uh, to win the game or whatever it might be, that's a very simple example. That's not you know, diving in too deep. Well, inherently, people that know this game and have watched thousands and thousands and thousands of games know that to not be true. So that's where you're trying to teach them something that doesn't fit, and they know it doesn't fit because of their experience. So... Technically, we should really just be giving up on that and trying to find things that support what we know does work and then keep adding, you know, and build out players that way because that will increase the, the accuracy of your predictions, right? Um, and that's where I find kind of the angst between the parties. And a lot of guys, without even knowing it, they use analytics. You know, you're talking to... I'll rename unnamed, but I talked to a gentleman that I consider maybe the best hockey mind I've ever talked to in my life. No, I don't believe in analytics. Oh, okay. Uh, but he said, but you know, that kid had four shots. I'm saying, I go, well, you're already doing this. And you just don't even realize that you're using these things to support your cause. You're just not calling them analytics. That's another thing that happens in hockey is the gentlemen don't even know that they're actually thinking already in this objective approach. And yeah. You know, there's a lack of communication there. So there's a lot of things going on in hockey and where we are, which, you know, I think it bodes well for the future because I think we're going to get there and I'm excited about that. But I would, I would say it's about finding, if I had to be very particular and opinionated about this topic, I would say that right now the predictive rates in hockey are very low with what we're putting out there as the data that should be used and, you know, what we're building these uh, different metrics off of, right? The initial data is extremely low predictive rate, but we're talking as if it's the end all be all. And until your predictive rate is much higher, you know, it's, your, your analytics are always going to be lacking to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I think there's a, a really, that's a really good description of that topic. And uh, you know, a lot of people don't like analytics. People love it. Uh, you know, everybody's in between. But uh, until you really get in there and start realizing, uh, you know, why are you using this? How are you using this? Don't use it too strong in one area, but capitalize on it in another area. You know, it, it really does come down to a team situation. And as you said, it's not perfect. It's definitely not up there with baseball and soccer and other sports. But, you know, as we move forward, it's just one of those things that we have to continue to work on. And, and people like me and, and people that work within stat and things like that. It's just the process of uh, continually studying, continually working towards it. And hopefully one day uh, there'll be a number to tell us who wins and who doesn't. But until then, uh, I guess we'll have to keep going for it. It's, it's never going to be perfect, right? Like it, 
it's always going to be evolving and that's the excitement behind it. But at the end of the day, if you can come up with a number also that just reduces risk, that's the biggest thing yeah. is you're just trying to reduce risk. You know, when you're drafting a player, how do I increase the odds that this player is going to play for me in the NHL and be what I expect? Now, that's the other thing is you always have to balance uh, that I find that I found when I was scouting are the expectations. And, you know, do analytics create too high of expectations? Do the eye test create too high of expectations for this player? Because, you know, you and I off air were talking about Baker Mayfield in Cleveland. And that's where I live. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? They want him to be Drew Brees, but he's probably closer to, a, you know, to an Alex Smith. And if he plays Alex Smith, everybody in Cleveland's ecstatic. Oh, he's a great quarterback. But if he has a game where we expect him to be like Drew Brees and he falls apart and it's terrible, everybody, you know, this kid, it's the end of the world. This kid can't play. And it's about expectations. And, you know, having more accurate expectations makes both parties happier, the player and the organization. Um, it also helps you, you know, win, to be honest. <laughs> so if I have a third-line winger on the first line, because my expectations are he should be a first-liner, but he's really a third-line guy, we're not going to win many games. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. And a lot of those expectations come through articles and, and sometimes it could be through analytics or, or whatever the case may be, you know, with Instat being an analytics source. But uh, a lot of people use Instat and things like that as references for new ideas and for different learning. So for you personally, what are some of your favorite resources, whether it be books, articles, podcasts? I know you don't listen to a lot, but uh, things like that that you look to for new ideas. Um, I, the way I learn best is talking to people first and foremost, right? So I try to network and I try to ask questions and I, I work hard at that. I do like, that's just the way I learn best is conversation with people that I objectively, I know it's subjective comment, but I think are, you know, very, uh, intelligent and just know more than me. I always try to speak with people that I think are just much smarter than me, such as you know, yourself on this podcast here. So I learn a lot from people like that. Uh, and I, that shapes your perceptions immensely. And then with books, you know, if I'm going to be a scout, I'm looking at one book in my bookshelf right beyond this computer here. And uh, it's Scout's Honor. To me, I don't understand how this has not been um, introduced to hockey. It's about building a, a dynasty in a small market and how you use the draft to do so. And it's kind of, you know, I just, I think it's an incredible book to read. Anything about Bill Belichick, anything about John Wooden, uh, Army Generals, Patton. You know, I, I think when you read about leadership, there's a lot of books that have come out that have said, you know, this and that. And, but to read about the people that actually lead, I think is really the most incredible thing. Um, and how they do things, you know, how Belichick argues with his scouts and scouting them, you know, and then you go to school and they say, well, conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. And you say, oh, I know, you know, but this is what Belichick does. He evokes that emotion and it gets the, actually by evoking the emotion, you get rid of the emotion and you, then you can deal with the facts and you make better decisions. And uh, so I read a lot of books about that. Um, I, like, I like to read for fun too. So I'll read John Grisham books, but um yeah, I'll read, I don't know all the titles. That's, I, I, I used to, I, I shouldn't say, um, used to, I read a lot of books. Let's see, Never Say No. Um, there's a sales book that you read, negotiating books. I like to read those and see how you can negotiate things and questions that people ask and different perspectives there. Um, you read about, I don't know. There's just tons of books out there, right? You yeah. read different books about building organizations and from good to great, putting people in the right positions. That's a big deal. Like when you're managing a team, how do you put people in the right position? You know, in hockey, how do you put people on the right line combinations to optimize their output, which analytics can help with if done properly. And that's a really big deal. Um, stuff like that. That's what I read. And then you watch the news and you watch sports news and you watch everything and you read Twitter. I'm a big twit. I just watched the social dilemma on Netflix. So I don't want to admit it, but I'm a huge Twitter guy. Um, I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter and uh, I'm pretty lucky that when I read something or hear something, I, I absorb things very well. And 
I get a lot of information off of Twitter. So many people like to put their thoughts and opinions on Twitter. Uh, I'm a pretty avid follower myself of a lot of people in hockey and in other sports or, or just people with general thoughts uh, on various topics. But uh, like you, I like to learn a lot through networking and, and meeting people, the podcast being one of my uh, main ways to do that. But uh, for you, you've had a lot of different connections in the industry and a lot of them you would consider mentors. Uh, once again, just talk about some of those key people and then uh, you know, touch on some of the major lessons that they taught you and that you learned through your experiences. You know, obviously, my father taught me a lot. Right? I mean, he's been in sports for 60 years as well as one of the highest level golf agents in the world. And so you watch how he conducted business. And like I said, business and sports typically translates sport to sport. Then uh, there's another individual that actually brought him to IMG named you know, Peter Johnson, local in the Cleveland area that uh, you know, COVID's interrupted our coffees, but he's just a tremendous individual. He teaches me, you know, people think I'm blunt. I think he's about 20 times as blunt as I am. But he, you know, as much as he's hard on me, he, he teaches me a considerable amount and holds me accountable and pushes me in the right direction. And that would be mostly outside of hockey. But in hockey, I would say, you know, uh, you know, Bobby Smith, he gave me my opportunity to do what I loved. I love scouting. And uh, he gave me that opportunity. And I learned more from Bobby. We stay in touch to this day. And you talk about a gentleman that just does everything right, you know, and is really – uh, does things genuinely uh, for the right purposes. And, you know, that's reflected in Halifax's success. And it's reflected in Cam Russell, you know, who does, is the same type of person, you know, and you learn so much from just 10 minute conversations with those two individuals. It's very, very lucky to even say that I know them. Uh, so I've learned a tremendous amount from them. And, you know, unfortunately, Bob Crocker passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, but I don't know if I've ever learned more from anybody, you know, outside of him. He, his level of patience with me as a young, probably immature hockey person, not probably immature hockey person, uh, was incredible. And the lessons he taught me driving, you know, like the moments that uh, are private to me and him, right, uh, that we spent driving through the New England area and beyond. Um, it's just, you probably hear my the trembling in my voice, you know, it brings up a lot of emotion. Um, he taught me more about life than anybody in the world. You know, his favorite saying, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So, you know, when people say, Mark, you're taking a risky move or this or that, you know, first thing that comes to mind is nothing ventured, nothing gained. And you learn from the, the repercussions of everything. And then outside of that, you have, you know, the intro introductions that Crocker uh, made to me, Mr. Crocker, as I always called him, made for me was, you know, the Bob Lucini, one of his closest friends, if not his closest friend, who scouts for Carolina. Bob's wisdom is immense, you know, and Ed McColgan, uh, you know, Bob coached Franklin High School for however many years and won state championship after state championship in Massachusetts. I coached Peter Lavoyette, he has coached forever. And they know the players, you know, like you talk, why did Esposito score so many goals? Well, because of his body position in front of the net. And it's just like this little tidbit of information that he learned in the 1960s that he's telling you in 2015, 20. And it, it applies, right? Like, is this player's body position angled properly to actually score the goal in front of the net? You know, and it, it's just a very, it's all these little things. And you had people like this, like Bill Bergman, I stay in touch with. And Bill scouted forever and played forever. And Ed McColgan, who was retired, you know, won, won the Stanley Cup and got out with Washington, but Ed was, I learned a lot from Ed. Uh, you just go through James Boyd. You know, so once again, lucky to call him somebody that I can even talk to. Just a really patient with me and just one or two lines taught me a lot of things. Uh, yeah, just a lot of people have helped me along the way. Yeah, I, I always love asking people that question just because it really is such a long list. And I joke every time that there's probably a million different people that people forget and, and they'll think about it after the interview. But um, it really does take a tremendous amount of unity and, and help from others to be successful. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people who go through their careers, uh, when they have an opportunity then to give it back to someone younger or someone trying to enter the industry, uh, they're jumping at the bit to do it. So as a final question, uh, as someone who's worked in different areas of hockey and sports, what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone young 
maybe even yourself back in the day who was looking to enter hockey operations or sport in general? Well, I wouldn't give myself any pieces of advice because you do what you do and I wouldn't have learned what I have learned. Right. So what I would say to a young individual is forget, forget the Twitter, forget the Instagram, forget the social media, go to the rinks, watch the games, you know, find an elder person that knows the game and follow them around and ask them questions and learn about the game and learn about the traditions of the game. Cause I think that's the scary thing about hockey is this newer generation, you know, which I'm part of, I know, I don't know if we know the traditions as well as we should. And that scares me a lot about uh, the future of the game. Uh, but I think that there is a tradition in hockey and I think it's the best thing in the world. So that's what I would say is, you know, hustle. You can't learn if you're not in the rinks. You learn something every time you're in the rink and go and just watch hockey. You know, if it's a mighty might game or I don't know what that level is in Canada, Timbits, I suppose. Um, or if it's, you know, Pee Wee or Adam or whatever the level is, go watch it. Just spend time at the rink because you're going to learn something every time. You can learn something from every single game and, you know, behave with integrity. You know, my dad's favorite saying, uh, you don't have to remember the truth. You know, you have to remember your lies. You don't have to remember the truth. And so I think that's important because that defines the person you are and who you want to be. And that ultimately will get you respect in return, hopefully, right? So, yeah, hustle, behave with integrity, I would say. That's just hammer away at it. There's no rhyme or reason why some people make it to the levels they want or they don't or whatever. It's just got to keep hammering away at it. Yeah, be be approachable, get in the rinks and, you know, work your butt off every day. And when you do all those uh, three in unity, you know, good things will come to you and, uh, a lot of people will be able to say, uh, you know, they give their best shot uh, through those efforts. So Mark, I just want to thank you once again for taking some time to uh, join me on the podcast. I know you've had a pretty busy day here already, but I uh, really enjoyed this conversation and I wish you all the best moving forward. Hey, couldn't be uh, more honored to be on here. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to speaking soon. All right, for sure. Take care. You as well. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Mark for taking some time out of his schedule to come on the podcast and talk about his career to date. One of the things that Mark spoke highly of was the importance of mentors and role models in the game and throughout life in general. So again, I'd like to thank him for sharing his experiences and insight. If you would like to get in touch with Mark to discuss his experiences, I encourage you to reach out to him directly or contact hockeymindspodcast.outlook.com and I can help make that connection for you. Next on the podcast, I'll be joined by Connor Cataret, assistant coach with the Stouffville Spirit. Another proactive hockey mind, Connor dives into the lessons learned throughout minor hockey, so be sure to listen in to that episode. Once again, thank you everyone for supporting the podcast, and thank you for continuing to interact with the podcast on our various platforms. As always, stay safe, and I'll